Okay, thanks, uh, Kevin. You asked for an upbeat presentation. And um, we're also, I think, uh, short of time, so I actually dropped all my slides about the problem. We've been hearing about uh, that a lot, so I focus immediately on what can we do about it. And actually, I think I'm the first one to talk about that. I also give you an advanced warning. This is probably going to be the least academic uh, presentation that you will see during this conference. A little bit of background. Uh, our government, uh, members of parliament, our environment minister, they got concerned about all the news items about the climate changing faster than projected by the IPCC. Uh, sea level rising even uh, higher, and they advised, uh, they um, invited the Dutch expert community to uh, tell them about the problem and provide solutions. And a small group um, actually came together, our Met Office, Wageningen, and Energy Research Foundation to address that, uh, that question. And I immediately go to the options. In fact, it's uh, basically uh, how to save the planet in 15 minutes. Four ways. If I would have to talk to my minister, uh, probably five minutes would, uh, would be all I would get. Um, if you ask people, uh, the first reaction is usually just step up emission reduction efforts. See, we did this. We asked policymakers in the Netherlands uh, what would they do in such a situation. This is always their first answer. Complementary, if that would not be sufficient, we can sequester carbon, of course. We've been hearing about that. You can do that in all kinds of ways. i come back to that later. Um, another option, if the first two will not work, something that's nowadays called solar radiation management, influencing the radiative forcing of the planet. If those three options would not work, or for instance, geoengineering would not be acceptable, there's only one thing we can do, which is emergency adaptation. So basically, these four options capture the kind of things we can do. And, uh, well, when can this, this kind of emergency options be applied? So this is not uh, supposed to replace our current discussion, but the kind of separate, I come back to that later, discussion, exploration about when the more dramatic options should be considered. Well, the first is this item figure, uh, if indeed the climate would change fast, say beyond four degrees, as the IPCC AR4 suggested that would be possible, maybe even faster, if we get all kinds of positive feedbacks. Another situation where, say, more extreme options could be considered, if, uh, eco if ecosystems and other systems would be more vulnerable than we thought recently. Uh, we, of course, know this figure, uh, John Schellnuber showed it. Four degrees, five out of the five reasons for concern are in the red, and even for the EU target of two degrees, three out of the five reasons for concern are in the red. There's even a third situation where uh, more extreme options may be considered, and this is actually the starting point, I understand, of the study by the Royal Society in this country about geoengineering, if current mitigation policies would not be successful, if Copenhagen would not read, lead to any useful results. Now, uh, actually, we made a kind of quick inventory of all the kinds of options that, that would be available, that have been suggested in the literature, uh, dozens of them, um, and then we looked at four criteria, um, or groups of criteria, if you like. How effective are they in terms of actually avoiding impacts? How feasible are they uh, economically, uh, technologically? What are the environmental risks for the climate, for maybe uh, air pollution, uh, other environmental risks? And what are the political implications, implications for governance? Now, you can imagine if you have dozens of options and you have this uh, set of complicated criteria, it's very hard to prioritize. Uh, some options score better on one, one uh, criterion and others on others, but 
at least we try to uh, to provide our policymakers with an overview of uh, of the options and go through them very quickly. Uh, what about emission reductions? For those who have been involved uh, maybe 10 years ago in supporting the Kyoto negotiations, may remember that also at that time it was already important to get some idea of actually what is the maximum rate of change uh, of global emissions uh, that can be achieved. Because the higher it is, at that time we thought uh, the, um, the longer we can actually wait reducing emissions. And at that time, based on analysis, for example, of the replacement of, uh, of capital, the numbers were usually between 2 and 4% per year. Uh, now, we have seen in, for instance, this one, uh, Shell numbers figure of the first day, that we may have to think about uh, more rapid change, 6%, maybe even more. Previous presentations also touched upon this. But what does that really mean in practice? Um, if you think now about it, uh, actually, I've been involved in those days as well in those discussions, and actually, right now, it's a little bit different. The world has changed, and if indeed the climate would change much faster than we would expect, there would really be something that you could call a crisis situation, maybe even a warlike situation, where there are new opportunities. A number of uh, possibilities. Uh, actually, now, nowadays, we know about options we did not know about 10 years ago, like the combination of uh, biofuels and uh, carbon capture and storage. Uh, of course, we could focus even more on uh, short-lived greenhouse gases, black carbon, methane. Uh, maybe it's more useful uh, not to think about incremental improvements of technologies, like, uh, for instance, uh, well, improving car efficiency, but let's think about mobility systems. Let's talk about food security rather than improving yields of particular crops. So, uh, thinking more about uh, maybe what uh, Lisa mentioned for adaptation transitions. Uh, and then, of course, we had the financial crisis last year, and we've seen that governments can, in fact, do things that we could not imagine a couple of months before that. So in case there would really be a climate emergency, you can even think of a kind of re-establishment of more control of governments over energy supply and industry, or over demand, dietary changes, transport quota. But, of course, you can imagine there would be very, very strong societal opposition to almost all of these options. Uh, even in emergency situations. The lead times can be expected to be long. Uh, and the effect is also slow, because here we're only talking about emissions. And then you have also the delays in the climate system. Concentrations, radiative forcing, uh, impacts. So this is not really a fast solution. So what about taking carbon out of the atmosphere? Um, people are very creative. Uh, this is actually the kind of traditional way, uh, reducing em emissions from deforestation and degradation. Uh, actually, there's just a new paper in Climatic Change suggesting to use desalinated water to uh, uh, irrigate the deserts of the world and forest them. All kinds of good ideas, or bad ideas, I don't know. We all know about uh, the plans for ocean fertilization. There have been some tests which were not very successful yet. Um, in fact, there is now moratorium uh, because of the unknown uh, effects on marine ecosystems, but in an emergency situation this may change. We're just listing, in fact, what's, what's possible, what has been proposed. You can take carbon out of the atmosphere through uh, aquatic ecosystems, algae, for example. This is actually a kind of artist's impression of uh, uh, containers on the top of buildings. Biochar, another option. 
uh, getting the, well, in fact, also something that can be combined with biofuels, just like the algae, and then uh, putting the, the carbon in the soil, improving the soil. Uh, Sheldon and some others have also mentioned uh, air capture. Um, the picture shows also a possibility, for example, of something like artificial trees you can place next to highways. Um, problem with this kind of option is that you need a lot of energy. There's heating involved and, uh, and all kinds of chemistry. Um, you could wonder why not use that energy uh, for other purposes in the first place. But anyway, this is one of the options that's currently being proposed and, uh, and researched. In my own country, there are a number of people trying to push for uh, mineral sequestration. This is basically enhanced weathering of, um, of rock. Olivine is uh, apparently one of the more effective uh, substances. But if you look at all these possibilities, and there are probably more, uh, uh, the risks are very diverse. Some of them have serious risk we don't really know about yet. Uh, some of these options have energy penalties, uh, also for the mineral sequestration, for example. You need to crush rock, that is not easy to do. Um, and of course, again, there are delays also in the, uh, in the societal and in the natural system. So if these two options or categories of options would not be sufficient, that's where solar radiation management comes in. Well, also for that group of options, many proposals have been made, and uh, actually almost every week, I read something new about this. The aerosols in the stratosphere have been mentioned. Uh, Paul Crutzen actually basically reintroduced this idea. Space screens, you can think of one big one, and there are even uh, detailed designs already of many small ones you can actually uh, put into space. Um, changing the albedo of the Earth. Um, Foils over, over deserts, for example. You can change crop varieties, make them lighter for the same nutritional value. You can make urban areas whiter, pavement, roofs. And even uh, some people have suggested that you can actually put films over the ocean to increase the, the albedo. What's supposed to be one of the more benign options, although I'm not really convinced, is cloud modification. Uh, for example, seawater injection, uh, making clouds brighter. It can be done at the regional level, but if you would really make a difference at the global level, I think you have to do this over a large part of the ocean with, again, unknown effects. All these options have, I think, in common that the response time is quick. If you, if you just uh, deploy them immediately, you will have this radiative effect. But before we can actually do that, we need a lot of time for research, de development, <coughs> negotiations as well, uh, because there are risks involved. And, maybe even more ethical questions than with many of the earlier options I mentioned. So I'd like to, to mention a few. I just, just picked a few uh, examples and cartoons uh, from the internet, playing God to save the planet, uh, where they're made to order, who's actually defining what the ideal climate is. So we have questions like uh, the difference between uh, what we're doing now, which you could say is inadvertent modification of the climate, at least when we started to do it, this kind of solar radiation management, this is the new jargon, uh, intentionally modifies the climate. And in the past, uh, some of you may know, so almost, I think, a century of uh, history of uh, weather modification by the military. So we really have to think carf carefully about it. The ethical acceptability of doing this kind of thing while we don't know uh, the risks. Some people are really concerned about uh, the fact that uh, some of these options can actually be introduced by only one country or a small group of countries, maybe even a, a private company. 
personally, I don't see really uh, who has an advantage of doing that, but it's still something you have to think about. Uh, liability plays a role then, of course, if you would have unexpected effects. And the most urgent question is, should we do research at all in this field? Not going to answer these questions now immediately. Go to if, if this would uh, result to be unacceptable, uh, the only solution seems to be to uh, adapt. And um, well, I've noted that in almost all countries in the world, the whole adaptation discussion is very much localized. People uh, look at the potential impacts in their countries and see what they can do about it to reduce these impacts or the vulnerabilities uh, of the countries. When you really think about the four degree world, uh, where temperatures would maybe rise by eight degrees in Europe, um, it may not be a local problem anymore. Uh, actually, in our project, we do have some specific recommendations for adaptation in the Netherlands. I here list just a few international ones, kind of a call for actually raising the scale of the adaptation discussion from the local and the national to the global scale. Uh, because actually, it may be that impacts elsewhere, for instance, on uh, agriculture and food production, may have larger impacts on society and economy in a country than the impacts in the country itself. And that's not really taken into account yet. Um, it's a little bit different uh, with development collaboration, I think. Some countries are already considering to, uh, say, reallocate their funds according to the vulnerability for climate change. Uh, we've been hearing about uh, the climate refugee problem. There are uh, literature projections uh, suggesting that the numbers may rise up to hundreds of millions in a few decades. Of course, the definition of climate refugees is very difficult. Uh, people move not only because of environmental reasons, but also because of many other reasons. But still, if the climate would change fast and dramatically, uh, you could expect that there would be an increased number of, uh, of refugees. And actually, as was suggested before, it may not even have to be prevented. We may actually have to stimulate it and, and manage that. Then there is the security issue. Uh, several countries, uh, especially the United States, but I discovered uh, recently uh, even the military in my own country, in the Netherlands, is actually already looking into the risks of climate change for security. Um, the issue has already been discussed a few times in the Security Council. Um, and then another issue that I think is important. So far, uh, most people working in the field of adaptation think in terms of what I would call incremental adaptation, just raising the dikes uh, a few meters uh, every decade, rather than thinking of completely different systems. Uh, migration is one example, a completely new infrastructure design. This is actually a picture of some ideas of floating cities. Um, if ocean acidification is a problem, just lime the ocean. There are all kinds of ideas floating around that, uh, that may be interesting actually to look into. But the problem with this uh, adaptation uh, is, of course, there are limits to adaptation. This is something you hear about a lot, but in my view, there may also be limits to mitigation, in fact. And so listening to some of the presentation uh, and also thinking about uh, all these uh, sol uh, solutions that have been proposed over the last couple of years, there seem to be no limits to human ingenuity. But at the same time, there may be no limits to human stupidity as well. So I think the jury is still out. Um, last uh, thing I would like to do is, um, in the Netherlands actually, the, the question was from politics, so actually there is a, a, a group of policymakers or ex-politicians who uh, talked about this issue. We supported them a little bit in a scenario exercise, 
as probably some of you know, I've been involved in most of the scenario work of the IPCC. So I love these two axes. Um, dimensions are slightly different here. Um, the, the Netherlands is a small country, and we would like to know actually what we can do, taking into account what the rest of the world is doing. And two factors are important there. Uh, global coordination or collaboration is important, and the level of urgency, the sense of urgency in the world. And it appears that most people actually think that uh, if there would be a climate emergency, that the whole world is going to work together, and that everybody thinks this is a serious problem. But if you look uh, in human history, uh, I think this never happened before, so we may, we may have to be a little bit more cautious. Now, for instance, in a situation where it just doesn't work, this global collaboration, but still climate change is felt as an urgency, uh, it's quite likely that every country is going alone on this, and this is actually a situation where maybe geoengineering uh, could be an attractive option. The worst situation is, in fact, if there would be no sense of urgency, uh, even if the scientific community says there is a problem, uh, and no international collaboration. A little bit more uh, positive is a situation, a scenario, where there is not this sense of urgency, because there are so many other issues that are more urgent at a particular time, but there is some willingness to collaborate, but then to collaborate on other issues. So, actually, this was interesting. Actually, these dimensions came out of a discussion with politicians. And in fact, uh, this basically suggests that we have to take into account as a small country that other countries are not behaving the way, the way we would like them to behave. Um, uh, looks a bit different from uh, what I had on my laptop. Anyway, we have uh, a number of uh, emergency policies that could be considered. Um, just start thinking about it. This is basically what we would like to promote. And you can do that within the existing institutions, but you can also do it through new institutions. I actually mentioned the IEP, which is the energy, uh, International Energy Programme, which has an, a mechanism, an arrangement to deal with oil crisis. I don't intend to say that they have to cover this issue, but they have some interesting experiences we can probably use. Rules for research testing and deployment of geoengineering is something that we can start thinking about it. Greenpeace is very much against doing research, but at the recent Copenhagen conference, they actually had a very sensible list of conditions. Um, the issue of climate ref refugees should get more attention and international cooperation knowledge, uh, knowledge and technology transfer. Now, my final uh, slide about what we actually concluded from this, uh, this short project. Uh, as we have been hearing for the last two days, rapid climate change cannot be excluded, so it's wise to be prepared. None of the options we have been looking at can provide a solution within a few decades for different reasons. Uh, we feel that uh, emission reductions and carbon sequestration should still get prioritized, but because of all the delays involved in these uh, solutions, we should not exclude the other options yet. Uh, adaptation considerations should be scaled up to the global level, I think would be a good idea. And uh, also to start some more coordinated, internationally coordinated research and assessment efforts. And uh, recognizing that they differ. What you hear nowadays is just discussions about geoengineering, as if it would be one technology, but there are many differences. And some options might be uh, more attractive and have less risks than others. So I think we have to become a little bit more specific now. 
and we also suggest that rather than actually burdening the current negotiations in the UNFCCC or at the national level with this additional kind of plan B uh, ideas, we should first start to explore this in parallel. And then taking into account all the time delays, not only in the natural system, but also in the social system. And I've seen all these nice final slides, red sunsets, flowers, icebergs. I thought this one was more applicable to this conference. Thank you.